This is Rose. This is Mary. And this is Let's Be Honest with Rose and Mary. <laughs> this is a weekly podcast where we share our slice of Africa. Where we explore the history, culture, politics, business and daily life of the Africa we love and reside in. One honest conversation at a time. And to this week we have a... An exciting guest who will take us on a very interesting journey of discussion. Mm-hmm. The one and only clinical psychologist, Anita Awar. Welcome, Anita. Welcome. <laughs> Though I must confess, I've known Anita for a couple of years when we were teenagers. Grandma. We actually got to know each other through <laughs> my sister, who was a really good friend of hers in high school. Uh-huh. Mm. And I, sh- I like to say shared a class, but Anita taught me um, in college. It was a very fun class, human sexuality. Ooh. The best, yes. Mm-hmm. Love, sex and relationship, best life skills class ever, which every single student, kid, human being should be in. I loved every bit of it. So I have a question. As somebody who's known Anita all these few years, because we're still very young, um, why did you go into psychology and clinical psychology? I think I've always wanted to help people. And I think that's where it started. And I remember I had one desk mate who always told me, Anita, you listen very well, you should be a psychologist. So I started thinking about it. And um, I mean, all my degrees are in psychology. Oh, wow. um, so I, I, I just like helping people. Today we're going to go through, discuss a very interesting topic that's very close to me. Um, and it's pretty much the burden of abuse that women face. Um, it's, not, it's a very multifaceted thing because the more you explore it, the more you realize that for lack of a better term, we're more damaged than we actually think mm-hmm. we are. And you tend to realize um, that we should actually start spending more time with the Anitas of this world, more clinical psychologists who just try and figure out and fix um, the damages of our youth and our experiences. Mm. Um, so one thing that's becoming really apparent, especially in Kenyan news, is suicide rates. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's a huge rise in suicide rates. Um, it's estimated that Kenya, according to the WHO, um, Kenya ranks number six across Africa um, in leading suicide cases on the continent. And we're number three for the worst reason, and it's high rates of depression, mm. um, the third highest in the continent. But even though those statistics are normally there, for some people when they read it, it seems like a very abstract thing. Exactly. But for me, it's I live with depression every single day. Mm. <clears throat> and it comes from... You know, for a period of time, I also went through that point of, you know, you're sad, but then you say, I'm depressed. Mm. But then um, if I can rewind it, um, I have attempted suicide once and I have planned it once. And other times it's just a thought. It's not actually a plan or execution. Mm. It's just... Mm. I can't explain it. Even even as I think about it right now, it may seem very wrong, but I feel a sense of peace when I think about going le- through. Yeah, it. going through, actually just committing, just killing myself. It's just it, it's 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 like a sense of release. So let me rewind a bit. Um, when I was twelve years old, um, I don't know what argument I had with my cousin. We're in the village, and the plan, and I can remember I 
kicked her in the groin. And then I ran. I'm really sorry to my cousin out there. I don't want to mention her name um, because I didn't actually seek permission to whatever. But um, I ran into the river and the plan was because it was it was it's a seasonal river, but it was um, was a rainy season. So it had overflowed. Mm. So the plan is just to throw myself in. But my cousin ran after me and grabbed me. And I can remember walking back into the home crying. Mm. And when uh, my mom asked why what's going on, it was hush hush. Like (laughs) we didn't actually discuss Mm. it. The next time was when I was 22. Um, I had just wrapped up college. I couldn't get work. And I was just like, what the hell am I doing with my life? I'm I'm not amounting to anything. Um, And just things weren't working out. And I can remember categorically planning the least horrific um, form of suicide. And I thought slitting my wrist, but I made sure I did it in the bathroom so the cleanup process would be easier for my siblings. And then somewhere in between there, um, I slept at peace doing, I'm weak, you know, this, this is the plan tomorrow morning. And the following morning I woke up and I just cried through most of the day, confessed it to my sister. Um, she prayed with me and that was it. Um, I'm having this debate on whether I should actually say this. I have a family history of um, mental illness. Mm. And (laughs) the reason why it's not really a big deal for me, it's how we used to handle it. Now, the reason why I'm smiling is because I had an aunt Mm. who was just awkward. Like, um, I came to discover that she was bipolar, but I also kind of feel like she also had other things going on. Hers were just like a multiple case of... Um, uh, mental illness. So my aunt would do random stuff like she would come visit and then she would eat toothpaste. And then if she was in the height of it, um, the the two kilogram packets of um, wheat flour that we used to make chapatis, mm-hmm. on average for most families, it would be at least between 18 to about 25 chapatis in a pack. Mm. <laughs> when my aunt goes to, we used to go to the kitchen and make them, mm-hmm. you would get four. As in she'd eat all the She wouldn't eat them. They'd be like really thick. Oh. Like she'd make really, pretty much she'd make chapati cake. Because oh. it'd be really thick. Okay. Um, but how my aunts and even my dad, because she was my dad's sister, um, would handle it is what made it seem like, okay, this is a condition, but it's not something to be ashamed of. It would just be, okay, that happened yesterday night. Tomorrow morning, we're off to the only mental hospital in the entire institution, right? In the entire country. Madara, Madara is the only... I need to... Um, I don't know. There's Madara, Chiromo. Oh, Chiromo now as well. Yeah, and they're building one, I think, they're like expanding it, Bustani. Okay. Oh, um, all right. Uh, Mental hospitals. Yeah. But in the 90s, it was only Madare yeah, Hospital so. that covered mm-hmm. a population of probably 20 million at the time. Uh-huh. So we just knew when that happened, off to Madare Hospital to uh-huh. drop off Auntie Jane. And I can smile and laugh about it because it was awkward. Like, she was just weird awkward. Um, but she was really loving. If you don't mind me asking a question to Anita, 
It seems that Rose's family was very forward thinking at that time because for most African families that do have cases like this, this is hidden, this person is locked up, nobody discusses it. It's almost like a taboo. And is this is a cultural thing, isn't it? Yes, it's cultural and I think... Um, is it religious? Because it'll all come mm. back. Is it a mm. curse? Is it the devil? Is it? Yeah. And people will just ask all these questions. And mm. yes, you're right. They they are kept hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you won't say they've gone to Madare. You'll just say they're unwell. Yes. Um, yeah. So for them to make it look like, no, she's unwell and we're taking care of it. Yes. Very forward thinking. Mm. Yeah. Very forward thinking. Then it helps then the next generation of your family mm-hmm. to think about yeah. it in the same way. I also have a question in the sense that, um, again, there's not much information put out there in our society where mental health is concerned. And like you're saying, there's a lot of superstition behind it, you know, like a curse befell our family and this person has been cursed or this person just is not right mentally and let's hide them. So there are a lot of schools of thought that will tell you it's a a mental imbalance, a hormonal imbalance, a chemical imbalance. And then there are others who will tell you it's something that you inherit. So what is a clinical psychological perspective on this? I think it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's inherited, mm-hmm. inherited, but you can be genetically predisposed. predisposed right. Mm-hmm. So maybe certain life circumstances will take you down the path where you get depressed. So you have right. many deaths, you're mm-hmm. abused, you're, so depression might be more likely in, mm-hmm. in you. Alcoholism might be more likely. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have, um, there is, for some people who are depressed, they have lower ser- serotonin levels. Mm-hmm. And I like to call serotonin the happy drug in the brain. Yes. Mm. So it was like what makes you happy. So if it's slightly, so if it's meant to be at a certain level, it's lower and you can't, it's very hard to bring that balance up again. Mm-hmm, and right. then that's where I guess you'd see the psychiatrist to give you the medication to help balance that. Right. Um, and then work, I guess, in a sense with the psychologist to see what the triggers are and then how you can mm. help the right. next time it comes. So it's not necessarily that. So I'm going to ask you a question yeah. because you told us you had a fight with your cousin. You were 12 years old. Yeah. What was going on in your mind when you were having that fight? Um, it was a buildup of many things. Um, mm-hmm. She just used to irritate me. But that day, I think I just had enough and I acted out. But prior to that, what had happened was our family started going through a really tough financial problem. Mm-hmm. And I had I had never experienced that before. And it was mm-hmm. a very odd space to be in. Mm-hmm. Um and then to be very honest, my father spoiled me rotten. My mom complains. Um, <laughs> she says. So there's certain things that I, I just couldn't have. And I think part of it was just being a spoiled kid acting out. Mm. Um, and then it didn't particularly help. I think I'll just say this. Um, four years prior to that, mm-hmm. um, my 21-year-old sister committed suicide. Oh. So part of my solution to that d- entire dilemma of what was going on with the family financially. Um, and also uh, my cousin irritating me. Mm-hmm. And then also what was happening, it was just a whole whirlwind of a lot of things. Um, when you talk about abuse, a lot of people think about it in terms of um, sexual and physical. Mm-hmm. Most of the abuse I experienced was actually verbal. Mm-hmm. 
and this was not from my mother. This was extended family mm-hmm. and friends of friends. So people mm-hmm. who I thought were friends of the family, would, you know, word would come back and, you know, mm-hmm. um, the narrative was you're stupid like your mother, some would say. Mm-hmm. Um, others were just like, uh, others actually celebrated and the financial ruin, ruin sounds so... Hmm. Extra, but it's not really the best word, but it, it just the whole process, hmm. people cheering your struggles. Hmm. So from this kind of um, world where your daddy, daddy's daughter and hmm. you have everything that you want and things are working out and then all of a sudden it's just this floodgate of things happening. Um, and then also just realizing how within that short time span hmm. all this is happening, I've also shifted from... Uh, a British prep school in the UK, oh, wow. mm. and I have moved into the 844 public school system in Kenya. Nothing prepares <laughs> you for that. Mary, no. you went through that transition as oh, well. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> drama, drama galore. Um, gosh, I had a question, but before I get to the yeah. question... Let me let just me... add something also to to Rose. Also yeah. the... 12, the age, the age can be very significant. Right. Adolescence is starting. Right. Your emotions are going up and down. And I think many times depression is masked in adolescence because the question <clears throat> would be, is this adolescence or is this depression? Yes. Right. Because they're the same. You withdraw. You yeah. stay away from your family. Uh-huh. You want to be by yourself. Your yeah. grades can go down. Uh-huh. All these things start happening. And you're trying to tell your family, I feel this. And they're more likely then to think maybe she wants attention, maybe she wants oh, this. And right. it's, it's like pushed under the carpet because it's that age where mm-hmm. children do that. Yeah. So I have a question in regard to what happened to Rose and how she reacted. So the triggers were quite a number. Yeah. And so one, again, I'm going to be very general here in my question because these are the kind of questions our society will ask. Yeah. Why couldn't you cope? Why did your siblings handle it better than you? Yeah. So what is it about Rose? And I know you did explain about the chemical imbalances, the serotonin levels, and then, you know, just in terms of our biological makeup, there are people who are more predisposed. However, somebody will ask, Rose went through the same environment, the same triggers as her siblings. Why were they able to cope and she wasn't? Um... One reason that comes to mind would be maybe one, is it adjective? We don't talk about much is resilience. Mm -hmm. Some children, some teenagers have more resilience than others. So they'll go through the same, some even worse, and they come out very differently. Right. There's just something slightly, I don't know, is it more in that resilience that might make them then be the one who... Maybe the all secondly, the effect might not be felt then, but later. So right. how are Rose's siblings now? I mean, we don't have to go into that, but yeah. they might feel it later. Mm. They might have yes. relationship problems. They might also go through financial issues. They might have all mm. these things that might come out later. Rose was probably a lot, I'll go back to the age where yeah. it will all come out and it'll probably come out in the way society would deem as wrong. Mm. Um and I and use the word, uh, how did her siblings cope with it better? I think they just coped with it different. Uh-huh. So maybe some of them withdrew. Yeah. Maybe some of them acted out by drinking. Maybe uh-huh. some of them, but there was an effect somehow, uh-huh. some way in their life. Yeah. 
and it might not have been felt then, mm-hmm. but yeah. it will be felt at some point. So this brings us back to Rose's initial opening statement that we're discussing women and depression in our society and in the greater society. And we find that from research that has been conducted that men commit suicide more than women and women manifest their mental illness through depression. Why is that? If men are committing suicide more than women, Mm -hmm. then men are just as depressed as women. Women just verbalize it more. Uh-huh. So they might not reach the point where they commit suicide. Uh-huh. Right. Will they feel their feelings? Probably. And and Rose showed it so clearly. Suicide will go through those phases. Some days just a thought, yeah, life would be better off without me. Well, uh, what would happen if a bus hit me? What, and you'd have these yeah. thoughts, you move aside, you move on. And I think uh-huh. nearly everyone has that at some point. Uh-huh. Then you get to the place where you're, Think it's now taking over your life. You're thinking right. about it and thinking about it. It's the thoughts are just there all the time. Uh-huh. Then you get to the place where you have your plan. Yeah. I'm going to do this. I'm going to it's at least this, it's the least. Then finally you have the means. Uh-huh. How am I going to do it? And can you get access to whatever way you've thought about? Right. And I think probably men will reach that place and actually do something. Because who are they going to tell I'm sad today? Oh. Who mm. are they going to tell I feel worthless? Uh-huh. Who, am I, who are they going to tell today I just woke up and want to cry? Who? Their wife? Mm. Their pastor? And Nobody. So, so they, they, the only way out, when your only option is suicide, it's sad. So is there a problem with our society in the sense that men's success, men's purpose or sense of being is defined by their capacity to provide for their families and if they're not able to? And the reason why I'm asking this is there was a study done, I think, in the 80s. And a lady called Mary Caprioli was looking at societies that were in civil strife. And they noticed that the higher the propensity of men battering their women, abusing their women, was a clear indication that that society was going into civil strife, into some form of war, whether it was internal or external. And this was an indication of the fact that these men were not able to provide for their families. So if that is how men in our society are defined as the breadwinner, the man who has to buy the car, he has to provide for the children, they have to go to decent schools, Does that now take, um, do the men have a heavier burden in our society as opposed to women? I think they have a different burden. Mm -hmm. And I think that each burden that we have affects us differently. Right. And impacts our lives differently. What would be the burden then of the women? Uh They're expected to do all things they might not necessarily want to do. Many, many more of them are being battered than we think or know about. Uh Um. And you're told what to just, you made that bed lying in. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, so their burden is different. They have to take care of the home. They might want to work. Mm-hmm. They right. have to take care of the children and some have to give up work and they may want to work. So they, they're, I think each gender has different burdens and it mm-hmm. then impacts them differently. Mm-hmm. Men are raised here to be strong. Yes. They cannot cry. Yeah. So I think often I hear men can't show emotion. No, they can't. Sh- 
show certain emotions. Yes. Mm. Because they can show anger. Yes. Yeah. Joy, mm-hmm. frustration. Yes. But they can't show sadness, tears. Uh-huh. And and so I think they're just as depressed as women, but yeah. it just comes out differently. So uh-huh. the woman would, I would be able to say, today I'm going to see a psychologist because I feel I can't cope anymore. Uh, a man would find it very hard. It would be shouted in secrecy. Right. Because they don't talk about these things. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Sorry, no, no, just go ahead. So now I have a question. Going back to when you were eight years old is when you came yeah. back to Kenya. Yes. From having lived outside of Kenya for most of your childhood. All of it, actually, up that. until that. <laughs> so how did that make you feel coming back? Okay, in, you know, here's the interesting thing about children. Um, even when the entire house is being packed up and put in boxes um, and you hear conversations on the phone about shipping containers, you still think you're going back. Because three years back prior... Back to Europe. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought that maybe when we come back to London, we'll live in a different neighborhood. That's why mm-hmm. we're packing up the house. Because three years prior, I'd come to visit, um, I think we were in Kenya for like one and a half months with mm-hmm. my mom. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I set foot in Kenya to visit, mm-hmm. meeting aunts, cousins, relatives, um, and then we went back. Um, so when... It, yeah, because we landed 1st of November... So in November, we're there, you know, mm-hmm. um, we get to December and I'm just like, okay, um, <clears throat> in January, are we going back? Aww. So that's when my mom was just like, no, 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 this is home now. And I'm mm-hmm. just like, I, 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 I don't know, my friends aren't here. Mm. Um, and the first, I think, month or so, we're, mm. st- we're in a hotel waiting for a house to live. Mm. And then now we move from um, the hotel and then, um, which was just very... I hated staying in a hotel. I don't even know who we like staying there anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So just that general transition, it took, when it registered that we're here to stay, was my first day of school <laughs> in January mm-hmm. when it really dawned on me that, oh my God, I'm here to stay. Mm-hmm. I hated the, the way the school looked. Mm-hmm. Um, I hated the smells around me. Um, and then there was this odd language I was hearing people speaking mm. that I didn't quite understand, which, you know, I came to discover was Swahili with time, mm. which was my parents' coded language in the car mm. in London because none of us spoke it at the time. Um, so that mental transition, I can't really say it ever happened because throughout, especially primary school, mm-hmm. I was always waiting for the day that we would leave. So I never mentally adjusted to being around or being in school or my environment. Um, so, so I guess that was also part of the problem in general adjustment. I don't know. So I want to ask Anita because I fully understand what she's talking about. Yeah. Totally, completely. My coping mechanisms were extremely different. My dad sat us down and told us we're going back home. And home is very different. And he brought out textbooks and basically took us through an entire one-month process. Well, that was a legit induction. Yes, of preparing us for our education system here. Then he, I mean, he had traveled to Nairobi beforehand and came back with a couple of Swahili books. So he started teaching us the basics of Swahili. Ah. And so he also started teaching us about our culture and I, I understand my mother tongue and I would hear him whispering to my mom and he'd be like, oh my God, these children are not going to be able to adjust. They're not good. And so I understood what he was talking about. So I had a, a meeting with my younger sisters and I'm like, okay, we're going home. 
But we were excited because we went through quite a bit of racism where we were. And so I thought, I'm going to be in a country with people who look like me and who talk like me. Well, I didn't quite understand that I didn't talk like everybody. <laughs> but I was excited when we landed at JKIA, the airport, and I heard a man go, Jumbo. And I was like, yes. Lord, that was so different for me. <laughs> and <laughs> he looked like me. And I'm seeing this burst of color everywhere and people were colorful and yes there were different tones of skin but these were people who looked like me up until I went to school <laughs> however because children can be cruel and it was the most painful oh experience ever so we came back unlike you for about a year and a half in between these transitions so I left ah, Kenya right okay I left Kenya when I was six months old so we were in India and then Europe and then we come back for about a year and a half hmm. I can't say too much because I don't want to talk about my siblings and what we went through but there were nights of crying but then again it was I'm the big sister and after listening to daddy and what he did, let's make the best out of this. And so we would sit there and be like, okay, so who's not talking to you? Why do you think they're not talking to you? So we were going through analysis and I'm very didactic that way. <laughs> and um, telling, you know, my siblings, so this is how you're going to, to handle it tomorrow. You're going to look for people who like you are separate and so anyway, I tried to find a way to fit us into that space for one and a half years. Then we left. When we were coming back, we were mentally prepared. And we had a basic idea of Kenya. How old were you? When what? Um, the first time you came with your siblings. Uh, turning nine. Wow. Okay. So now we come back. I'm going into high school. And... I knew the kind of high school I wanted to go to and the one I didn't want to go to. So I keep teasing. I, I tell people, you know, this famous politician who left Kenya and was forced onto a plane and he said, I'm not boarding. I said, he stole my line because <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely Ooh. yours. <laughs> so I'm seeing this marvelous Delcy um, suitcase, very state of the art for those days. And my mother has bought the suitcase for me. And my mother's wonderful African mother. I'm like, mm -mm, why is she buying me a suitcase? Something's going on. Yeah. So I'm trying to understand the story behind this new suitcase. And so, again, with my siblings, we have a discussion. And I realize, oh, I'm being sent to boarding school. So I prepared myself to have that discussion. And I told them, no, I'm not. I'm not leaving the house. You will have to physically carry me out and I will jump over fences. I am not going to stay in a boarding school because of now my experience in that one and a half years. So I think the question I want to ask, because we've gone on now about our personal yeah. experiences, is um, what does it do to a child to take them out of an environment that they have become accustomed to? and place them in another environment that is so different. And now they have to create tools, new tools to adjust to this environment, something that they were not even prepared for. How does a child adjust? I think different, again, different, there's no like one fits in the box right. type thing. Um, and I think there are different ways of handling it. 
I don't know if Rose's experience would have been different if you were sat down and explained this is where you're going, taught a little Kiswahili. You had no, you just yeah. didn't know what was happening. Yeah. And so there was no, like you say, mental adjustment. Right. You might not have liked the experience, uh-huh. but you were ready to go because right. you were spoken to, you uh-huh. were told, and you were vaguely hearing your dad say they won't adjust, but you're uh-huh. thinking, he do not know me. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm going to do uh-huh. this. Challenge accepted, uh-huh. Dan. Um, but, so I think there's something to explaining things to, to children uh-huh. and right. explaining to them, you know, one might be 20 and one 15 and one 5 and one 3. There'll be different explanations. As right. three-year-old, we also understand differently. We look up to the probably the eight, the 10-year-old to see are they sad, are they happy, and sometimes mimic some of those things. Uh-huh. Um, but I think when you come to a place then where you just know nothing, yeah. I think the how you adjust to it and how then you have a horrible experience in the school you go to, right. it can be even worse. True. But it's very interesting because um, that was 92. 89, um, two of my siblings came. My parents knew the whole, tr- they're also big on um, um, us transitioning and adapting. Um, my my elder siblings did have a conversation with my parents, but the transition here. And I I think also what also painted a negative image was the stories my siblings would come back oh. um, to the UK with. Mm-hmm. Um, their experiences in school and that kind of thing. And then you're hearing books were stolen. You're just like, who does that? Who Like who, steal, who steals <laughs> books or oh. underwear or stolen in the shower? I can remember one of my siblings telling me that story. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it is important to prep the kid. And I, I think it's also just understanding that from, especially from my experience, that don't assume that a kid is too young to understand. Mm, yeah. It's pretty much more of just trying to break it down to them in a way that they understand. Um, yeah, because that same December, that's when I just, I'm reliving these entire experiences and I realize that first couple of months, actually the first 40 days of my existence in Kenya was tumultuous and in the most horrific ways possible. Mm-hmm. Because I was also introduced to how Luo's mourn. <laughs> there was a funeral that December. Oh, wow. Christmas Day was a burial. Oh. And it's madness, right? So from city life and then you're transitioning to the village and you're just like, who the hell are all these women? Um, so it's all this going on. There's no breathing space. Mm. And I just look at that and in retrospect, it's hilarious. But at the time, that is just too much mm. going on mm. for any individual to actually stomach. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And then when, so when you compound all these traumatic events and then how you looked at them as a child, maybe how you look at them now might be different, but how you right. looked at them and conceptualize them as a child will probably be very different to how you do now. Right. Um then they they might not, like I say, they might not have an impact on you then. Then you'll be like, okay, I'm going to school. I have to be strong. I have to be, you know, uh-huh. I have to let this bullying stop. I have to let this happen. All these thoughts are going through your mind. Mm-hmm. But later you'll think, oh, that was, those were terrible things uh-huh. that happened to me. Yeah. And you see, from my perspective, which I'm sure was also Rosa's perspective, is your relatives in Kenya looking at you like, why is this child crying? Why are they, I mean, what's the big deal? Mm. You're going to a good school. Yeah. Your parents live in a nice area. 
why don't you understand our culture? So there's a lot of questions being placed on this little child's shoulders where this child is supposedly behaving spoiled in the eyes of society. Yeah. And then we also have the same questions with mental illness. Mm -hmm. Why? Mm -hmm. Why is that? Mm. Why are you, what do you mean you're depressed? You have a good job. You haven't, then all these things will be justified for you. Uh -huh. mm. So the same questions come then later as adults. Uh -huh. So why, what do you mean your childhood affected you? What do you mean? And you right. get all these questions. Um, and I think we had a conversation just before and it was like, but you don't look like you are, or you don't look like, uh -huh. mm -hmm. you know, how does the person look and yeah. how are they supposed to look? And in fact, it's very interesting you talk about that question of how does your childhood affect your adulthood? Right. Yeah. Because there is somebody I know who went through a very, very traumatic childhood. And it has actually determined the kind of life they have as an adult. And it's not a pleasant life. And everybody around this adult is like, but so what? So what if they had that problem? I also had a similar problem and I'm fine. Now, I, I, what you said earlier that the manifestation of some of these issues can be not so much a mental illness, you know, openly like depression or suicide, but it could be something else like alcoholism or it could be you're a workaholic. Yeah. And I know somebody who was very self-righteous in the fact that they were looking at this other individual and thinking, why do they have that problem? And something in me triggered and I'm like, you are a workaholic. So that is how you deal with that similar issue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And because our society looks at people who work very hard and get good salaries and drive big cars and build big houses as people who have succeeded in life, yeah. that that person is not considered to have a mental problem. Yeah. And it will then be explained away with, ah, they're just spoiled. Or, ah, they're just, and there'll mm. be so many different terms other than the correct one mm -hmm. of what this person is going through and what they're experiencing. Mm. Um, there's a process I went through because by the time I was in my 20s, I was just too angry, like angry to the point that I'm five foot 10. So in other societies, that's average yeah. for a woman mm. in Kenya that apparently is King Kong. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, like my sister, right, for the my record, sister, yeah, for, I'm what five six, you're, and you're five what? three, yeah, right. And then my and we're average. Yeah, and I was considered tall. My sister's six two, mm -hmm. so yeah. Wow. Um, so I reached a point where I, and I'm also very, um, what's the word? You I'm have big. the right I'm, body I'm big for boned. your height. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. I, I'm big boned, so basically I tower over people. Giving people such a wrong impression of how you look. Yes. Okay, for the record, Rose <laughs> okay, is I, not. You see, she's comparing herself to Anita and I, who clearly are descended from munchkins. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like five generations. Yeah. <laughs> but Rose is if if I placed you in the average modern city, whether it's New York or London, you would find be clothes that fit you properly. Anita That's and true. I have to go to certain sections. Oh, and it's not because not we're to be skinny. Mentioned. <laughs> it's not because we're skinny. No, far from it. But you have to take, I have to take two pieces of clothing. Yeah. So you're basically proportional. 
and your standard, which means your people ate very well and healthy. Yes, my forefathers. Mm-hmm. So it reached a point where because I was because of my anger, I would pick fights with people on mm-hmm. the streets. It was ridiculous. But anyway, during the process um, that I went through, um, it was more like group therapy. And it was at that point that I started discovering just how many women have gone through sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And this is from fathers, uncles, relatives, and that kind of thing. Um, and part of me is just thinking, maybe the hugest problem with regards to the mental health of this country lies in our experiences. We seem to be walking, talking products of, not to just use it haphazardly, PTSD. Mm-hmm. And there's just too much damage that first needs to be fixed before we can focus on how we can solve other problems, like, I don't know, world hunger and peace. Yeah. And what's your, what's your experience with the kind of clients that you meet <clears throat> in um, that space? I think that PTSD is over-diagnosed and wrongly diagnosed. Uh-huh. Okay. I think that um, not everyone who has a traumatic experience has gone through PTSD. Okay. When we have, um, like if you think of 14 Riverside, mm-hmm. not everyone who was in that experience is going to experience PTSD. Uh-huh. Right. And they don't experience it two days after when the news is still going on over and over uh-huh. again. Uh-huh. When would I, if someone came in who was in that ex- uh, experience, diagnose PTSD after six months? Uh-huh. Before that, it's known as acute stress. Right. Uh-huh. If they're experiencing any anything. And many times if the if the with traumatic experience, if it's very recent, what they experience is, is normal. They're scared. They, yes. they don't want a door to bang. They they are having dreams about it. They're, those are all normal. Uh-huh. And if you then try and change that too fast, it goes. That's why we give them six months. Mm. And are they still, is it still so vivid? Is it still the same? Is it getting worse? Are Uh they now not eating? Then we can look at it differently. Okay. Right? Um, So I don't know if they're walking around with PTSD, but more that they are living lives that are filled with so much trauma that they don't know where to take it. Ah. Right? So Uh then it comes out. Um, you could be then like you, the angry person. So you're beating up your child. Uh You could be the person who's failing in school. You could be alcoholic. You Uh could be because you don't want to, you want to keep those memories repressed. Uh And contrary to what we're also told, children do not forget. Yes. They just bury it in a box so deeply that it's very hard to access. Uh You could become promiscuous because mm-hmm. you had no, you could had no boundaries with your body. So now you don't have them later in life. So there are so many things that could come out later as a direct result of that. Okay. Um, and also, not everyone who you don't have to go through therapy to work through it. I think some people maybe it's back to the resilience thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Some people have dealt with it and have learned to cope with it. Some people will deal with it well into their adulthood. Okay. I'm just curious, like, at, at what point, um, 
don't know whether you've partially answered this question, but just just on, touching on what you've just said with regards to um, people dealing with different situations differently, uh, and also the general process of managing the the trauma of that experience. At what point do you draw the line with someone that this is now this is not just coping, this mm. is a disease mm. that needs attention and treatment? Like, at what point do you draw the line? Um, I guess part of it is looking at it with that within that six six, six month, month period, period. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then the question would be: Is oh, you know, you won't all experience the same symptoms of PTSD because oh, there's right. such a number and there's such a number in each category. Mm. Right. Um, um, and you won't experience all of them after those six months. So maybe a year later, are you still not eating? Are you still mm. not sleeping? Are you still startled by sounds? Are you oh. still um, having recurrent memories about this? Then you start looking at maybe. So as yeah. opposed to you look at then how is this event still affecting their life were they multi so is this one of many yeah so they had 14 riverside then they were also at um the other mall is gone from my mind westgate they were also at westgate mm. they were you know they they've had multiple so how do you then maybe then and none of them has been dealt with so it's mm. like a recurring yes. effect so at one point they will prop not they will, but might have, their resilience might go down. Yeah. Mary, I want to throw this to you. Mm -hmm. um, based on your experiences, I mean, you, you were the phenomenal child who was like commander in chief of, let's try and make this work in Kenya when you arrived. Right. Um, Not quite, but <laughs> if my family is with your siblings. With your siblings, yeah. Um, uh -huh. Did you, do you struggle with a constant sense of, I will never fit in? Or were you able manage to, were you able to make peace, accept and adapt? Um, or is it still a struggle to feel like you actually fit here? Um, I realized very early on when I was nine years old that I'm not Kenyan enough. And that was a very wow. painful experience for me at that age because I wanted to come back home. Mm. So um, when I realized that I was not fully Kenyan, right. I made peace with it. Okay. And I made peace with it like, okay, so I'm not Kenyan. So what am I? Mm. So remember what I told you when I told my siblings, we're going to look for people who are not quite Kenyan, who are not fully Kenyan. And those are the people who will become our friends. Right. So they may have... As Anita raises her <laughs> <Yes>. hand. <laughs> so, but even then, it was still a bit of a problem because for me, it was Indians. Very many of my friends became Indians, uh, were Indians, sorry. And it was because I'd be in their environment and they know, yes, this is a Kenyan girl. She's not Indian. She's not Hindi. But she enjoys our food. She enjoys our culture. And maybe this is because the very first place that I lived in was India. And I loved Indian food. Right. So the long and the short of this is, through that process, I have defined who I am. 
Mm-hmm. And in that process of definition of who I am, I'm like, I'm a Kenyan who is different. And in fact, I wanted to go back to what you were saying earlier about some of the manifestations of our um, trauma coming forward. So I feel that um, our parents who come into the system, this modern Kenya in the 1960s, have this, you know, joie de vivre, they're excited, they're all these opportunities. So they teach their children who should be around 50 today, because if you were born in the 60s, yeah. maybe 70s, you're going into your 40s. So those children may have benefited from that system, but you end up with a group of Kenyans born after that. So it's later 70s, going into the 80s and onwards, who have been taught this is the process to succeed. This is the process that you have to achieve to become a productive citizen in our society. And because a lot has happened economically, politically, those opportunities are not there. So women are not getting married the way they used to get married in the 70s or the 80s, you know, straight out of university or high school and you get a good job and then you marry a man who has a decent job and then you save a little money and you have four children and a little dog and, you know, everything's la-di-da. Right. So there's this compounding generational trauma that I feel I find in our society where even our identity is in question because you have all these children born in Nairobi from different ethnicities and you have all these children in the village who have more of a homogenous identity in terms of their ethnicity. And now you're putting all of these people together and the kind of politics that we're having and the economic situation that we're facing. And you end up with a society that is at a loss divorce rates have spiked over the past 10, 15 years. And if you ask my parents' generation, why do you think that is so? They're like, oh, you guys just don't know how to stay in marriages. You don't know how to, you know, be resilient, to use that word. And so our society, I feel, is not accepting the fact that there's something wrong. Yeah. Yes. And it's not only about mental illness. Mm -hmm. I think... As a society, we deny many things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we live in this bubble. Mm-hmm. So like, but suicide is higher. Well, maybe it's just been talked about more. Mm-hmm. Depression is higher. Well, maybe it's just been talked about more. There's more rates of, rates of sexual abuse. Well, maybe little girls are now just coming out more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that we hide so much and you talk about compounding traumas. Yes. Right. And I think, yes, and that's part of it. So you hide the trauma of your youth where maybe your mom didn't listen to you t- sharing the story of abuse. Maybe your, you know, and it was hidden in the home. You learn to then grow up and hide all these things that are terribly painful and hurtful. Yeah. And then going to talk to someone and trying to explain all those things and unpackage it takes a while. It's not just about what you came in with. I'm not performing at work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are like 20,000 <laughs> other things yeah. behind there yeah. that yeah. you need to go into. That's true. I I remember having a conversation um, with a boss I had, um, and we are just reminiscing about where we used to work. And he was saying that, you know, you do realize that at the time I was general manager, I spent more time giving counseling and life skills support mm-hmm. to the colleagues that I had, mm. than actually talking about their performance 
because he realized that a lot of people have a lot more problems that are making them completely incapable of delivering their jobs, which they're more than um, capable of delivering. It's just that there's just so much happening around you that there is absolutely no way you can deliver on your actual task mm. if those are not resolved. Um, and for him, because, I mean, I worked in the media space, he was just like, it comes, for him, it was just like, I'm used to it, it comes with the territory. Mm. But I'm just thinking of other people who work in other sectors, they're just like, what the hell is wrong with you? Do the job or leave. But there's this, just this whole mashup of things to deal with that we don't actually realize that we actually need to look into. This entire conversation is making me think twice about my <laughs> life and realize, oh my God, now I understand why I'm depressed. Now I understand mm. why there are moments of suicide. It's mm. making sense. Like the dots are connecting. And I realize that there's so much suppressed trauma I've had. And in my head, I normalized it. I'm just like, people go through crap and life does continue. But this conversation is literally making me realize that, oh my Lord, um, maybe I should have a session, start having sessions with Anita after this recording. <laughs> <laughs> um, to go back to the corporate world, um, I remember talking to an HR manager and they say that nowadays they actually train like line managers and other managers to ensure that they look out for any behavior that changes in one or two of the employees and bring them to the HR manager so that they can try and help that employee cope with whatever it is that they're dealing with. Yeah. For instance, I know of somebody who always was angry in the office and constantly bickering with everybody. And your standard procedure in any Kenyan office would be like, you know what, we've had complaints about you, first memo, second memo, third memo, go. Yeah. But what this manager tried to do was to get to the root of why this person was constantly angry. And I felt that was so phenomenal that this HR practitioner is trying to help this worker, this individual in the company actually cope with their issues. I know of another case where there's a gentleman who had a very good job and he was drinking. And his job was such that he could not be under the influence of alcohol if he had to conduct his job. And so what the organization did was actually take him for rehab. Wow. And they paid for the rehab. And this person's life has changed because of that. Yes, the issues that brought about the alcohol maybe were not entirely dealt with, but they allowed that individual to continue working for their organization. And I think that a lot of Kenyan organizations, especially the larger ones, right. are beginning to, you know, realize the fact that we have a society that has, you know, a couple of issues. And instead of just sweeping that under the carpet and saying, oh, Mary has issues on this and I cannot deal with it, help Mary, help Rose and mm. many others. Yeah. Mm. That's a, a really good step. Mm. That is amazing. I, I guess for me, when I was just looking and evaluating all these different things and just playing the record of my life in my mind, I realized that the underlying thread throughout was a sense of unworthiness. Mm. Um, I, there are many facets to the, what's coming to my head right now, but just, just to touch on the same, in response to the question that I asked you with regards to fitting in and feeling like this is home, 
Um, Kenya is home. Yeah. Um, I love it. Um, and I wouldn't but I tend anywhere to, else. Yeah, neither would I. But mm. I just tend to feel like Kenya. I have an abusive relationship with Kenya. Like I, I, <laughs> yeah. I genuinely feel like <laughs> right. I have, like, um, in this sense, um, I wasn't able to build a community. By the time I was joining public school, mm. there weren't that many multiracial mm. or Indian kids. Mm. It was one or two. Mm. Um, and... So I generally have always operated as man solo. I will mm. be in a group. I'm an extrovert. I will have my fun. I will do my thing. But I don't attach to people. Mm. Um, it's only when I met my best friend and Mary um, 13 years ago this oh. year that I finally felt like, oh, my God, I found my clan <laughs> of two. <laughs> right? Uh -huh. um, so having having the two of you uh, has definitely now solidify that this is oh, home and oh. not just that I, um, I have family I have siblings and um, a mother that loves me so it's still home I have my uh, my roots in my, my base here but there's always that constant feeling of unworthiness and the one question I keep asking myself is how how do you deal with that sense of unworthiness because oh. even as I talk to people it's not my situation may be different but my interpretation of what other people feel. It's just the underlying feeling of unworthiness in the environment and community you live in. Um, one of the, the, I guess, symptoms of depression, if that's what it is, is those feelings of unworthiness, having right. negative thoughts, mm -hmm. either about yourself or about the world. Um, and I guess as psychologists, we try to tap into that and try and change that belief. How I would work would be then try and change that belief system. Mm. Right. You said such a powerful statement, Mary. You said, I'm not Kenyan enough. I think mm. many people don't feel even human enough. Uh -huh. yeah. Everything is about, um, I didn't sleep enough. I didn't. You wake up and that's your oh. first thought. Everything is about not being enough. That was by Brene Brown. <laughs> um, and it's and if we wake up and that's our first thought, I haven't eaten enough. I haven't done this enough. I haven't worked out enough. I haven't, you know, I don't have enough time to do this podcast. I don't have, you know, everything is yeah. about enough. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, and that feeling of enough is, I mean, the way you said it, it was such a powerful way to describe that feeling you've just yeah. said. Hmm. And I think because we so often feeling feel it, it becomes normal. Mm. And it's not. Yeah. I think for me, the feeling of not being Kenyan enough and the question you ask is, um, I do a lot of um, media work. So my face is out there, my voice is out there. And I don't sound quite Kenyan because <laughs> we're all yeah. about placing people. Yeah. And then um, I don't know why people think I don't look Kenyan. I still, for the life of me, don't understand that because I look like my relatives. Yeah, even I don't get that. Yeah. So I get the question of, so what are you? Yes. And I'm sure you, Anita, also get that question a thousand times. Yes. And they also who, now touch your hair what? as well. Yeah. Yes. What? An what object, are you? an item. Exactly. Yeah. And I remember I was doing some political commentary and there was a lady next to me who's African-American, biracial. But, um, and I want to put this very politely, she looked more African in her look. 
though she was very pale in her skin tone. Okay. So you have an idea of how she looked. And then we had a young gentleman, very young, maybe 24, 25, working for some civil rights organization. So we were chatting before we went onto the studio space. And he turns to her and he's like, oh, interesting name. And she's like, yes, American. So he's like, oh, okay. Um, what part of America? Because I've traveled to America. So they have this discussion. And he's like, yeah, but you know, you black Americans. And she rightly pointed out that she is biracial. So she did not want to get into this whole thing because the discussion was about Trump. And she didn't want to get into this whole thing about race. So she put that out there. And I think for her, it was to tell him, that's it. I'm not going to discuss this further. And I understood what she meant. Mm. So he turned to me and he's like, and you, what are you? Wow. So I said, as you can see from my name, I'm Kenyan. And he's like, yeah, but what Kenyan? I mean, what are you mixed with? And I'm like, oh, Lord, have mercy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I feel as a society, and I think this is an African thing, we want to pigeonhole people. And so you will understand me better if I tell you I am rich or my parents are rich or I didn't go to school here or that I am part this and part that. And I feel that our younger generation, like my son's age, he's 17 and he goes to school with all manner of people. They're in a much better place. And he does not ask that kind of question. In fact, when people ask me that question, he looks at me and he's like, why would they think you're not Kenyan? I mean, you look Kenyan. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it, how do you deal with that? Uh, actually, have you ever dealt with it yourself? Yes. With what are you? The what are you question. Oh, <laughs> All the time. There's, there's a... I think she's a comedian, Liza uh -huh. Koshi. And she explains that and her Indian race. And she does it so well because she gives all the questions she's asked. Uh -huh. right. Then you're asked where you're from and they'll never mention your place. So are you Indian? Are you Puerto Rican? Are you? But they'll never mention Kenya. They'll mm -hmm. just never mention where you're from. Mm -hmm. um, you don't look like your name. I'm like, what's my name supposed to look like? Uh -huh. <laughs> so, yes, I think... There, when it comes to where people place you in a box, you uh -huh. just have to decide what, what, am I going to let it affect me? Because when I was young, I did. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, because I would consider myself black country. Yes, me. I don't, I might not be, but because I was raised in Kenya, maybe if I was right. raised in England, I would yes. think I'm white. Right. Um, so yes, I'm asked the question all the time. When I... When I do the multicultural class and my students, they'll always struggle not to ask me. I'm like, just ask a question. I've been yeah. asked it all the time. Where do you think I'm from? Just don't ask me what am I. It's offensive. Yeah. And so they'll always it. ask. They'll always I ask. Know. The interesting thing is yours is about your looks, right? Mm. And then you, I guess it's predominantly your hair. No, it's also have. You can't And facial Anita. features, right? To the listeners um, out there, you really... I mean, Anita, you could be from anywhere in the world. Yes, when I went right. to seashell, seashells, uh -huh. like, why are you standing here? <laughs> oh, yeah, get into the line get for Get into the line for the seashell. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> then their passport is blue, so I'm not helping. I'm like, no, I meant to stand here. Trust me. Trust you me. could be South American. You could be yeah. Mediterranean, European. Yeah. You could be from Asia. 
like the Philippines. Yes. You are global. Yes. Mm-hmm. In I'm your lot. Proudly biracial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So yes, I think that um then how you but when you're a kid and you're in public school mm-hmm. and you're you just become not Kenyan enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I find it very interesting that for you guys, it's heavily the facial features and how mm-hmm. people are trying to mm-hmm. adapt. Mm-hmm. I look African like any other person, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But I still get the same questions. It's your accent. It's your accent. Mm-hmm. It, it just, it, it genuinely fascinates me. Yeah. It's interesting you talk about accent because in high school now, I came prepared, prepared to fit in. So, <laughs> Disaster. So, I know. So for one week, I barely spoke and I listened to how the girls were talking. And they had this California Valley version of speaking in high school, which, oh, I'm so sorry to all who went to school with me for that one or two months that I spoke like that. And it was for me to fit in. Now, what it did is it made me look like a bit of a liar when people found out that I had lived outside of the country. Mm. So there are those who are like, no, no way. She sounds like us. And there are those who are like, no, 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 no. I know my mom told me that she came from here and she's not quite, you know, grown up here. And so there's this whole now discussion around me. And then finally, older girls come up to me and they're like, okay, so I hear you lived. Is it true? So why do you sound like that? And that was the realization that I had to be true to self. Yeah. Whether I fit in or not, yeah. just be you. Yeah. But, but you also learn something as well. Mm-hmm. I also play that same game. Uh-huh. Um, and I realize that to this date, and I've seen it with you as well, mm-hmm. your accent adapts depending on who you're talking to. You also give, you also, you know, it also happens to you, <laughs> right? Anita? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, it, mm-hmm. it, like when I find myself talking to Brits from the UK, oh, it, yeah. it'll adjust. Oh, and at times, even when I'm talking to Mary, like yesterday night when on the phone, uh-huh. I started hearing myself shift. Uh-huh. And I become conscious of it once it's actually happened. Uh-huh. Um, even when I'm talking to Kenyans, and it depends on Kenyans from where, if I'm in a rural area, urban setter, uh, urban area setting, or if it's peri-urban, uh-huh. I adapt. It may not switch completely, uh-huh. but there's an adaptation. And even when I'm talking to Americans, I also find myself also making that switch. You start overemphasizing the R's and that kind of thing. Um, And initially, I used to think that there's something wrong with me and I'm not being true to self and I'm pretending. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually started feeling like, okay, that's just being fake, Rose, be yourself. But Mm -hmm. I'm just like, okay, but what does being myself mean? Mm -hmm. Look at the environment I live in and the people I interact with Mm -hmm. and the situations I find myself. It'll morph into this thing, Mm -hmm. which is what it is today. Yeah. And I don't feel bad about it anymore. I'm just no. like, mm, yeah. it is what it is. It's a, it's a very fluid accent mm. or whatever it is. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And I think we, I guess we all, part of then the journey from the unworthy feelings would right. be being true to yourself. Mm. One of them would be. And whatever that true to yourself means to you. Mm. Is it the different accents? Is it owning that this is the body I have. Is it um, whatever it might be, um, it's being true to that. And it's not always easy. No. But it's worth it. It took me a while to be true to myself. It was when I realized it was just hard work. 
trying to keep that <laughs> Kenyan version of the California Valley accent. <laughs> oh, you guys! Oh, and I'm not hating on it. I'm just simply saying that was what I heard in plenty. And so that is what I sounded like for a yeah. while. But it was so tiring. And you see, like, if you had to read out loud in class, that's not the accent you're going to put. So people would be like, so how come you twang in class when you're reading in English? And how come out there? And you're like, oops, oops. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, um... I guess it just boils. It's it's very interesting. It's it's very interspersed mm -hmm. that when you look at depression and suicide, it's not just this abstract animal. There's a build up to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and then also realizing to resolve getting to that point, it's a journey in itself. In one understanding your pain and getting help, mm -hmm. yeah. and at the same time just finding your truth. And I think knowing that. It's a disease. It's not yeah. just, it's, oh. it might be mental. I like to say that, you know, when we go to a doctor, a GP, or mm -hmm. we go because we can see something. I have a headache. You can explain it. Mm -hmm. Your hand is terribly cut. You need stitches. You're, mm -hmm. You know, you, you can't breathe. So you think you're having a heart attack. You can identify something. But with much of mental illness because so much of it is internal yeah. it's very hard to explain mm. and if someone is describing depression many will say depression is i feel nothing how do you describe i feel mm. nothing and i feel nothing every day mm -hmm. yeah um and it's being able and i think depression is also a word that is like ptsd that is overused mm -hmm. right um you know i i think your last the, the question in, in, in your list, one of them was about like different types of depression and yeah. different types of, you know, we wouldn't call it depression. It's major dep depressive disorder. So it's a yeah. disease with symptoms, with, but, you know, someone passes, oh, you're depressed. No, you're sad or you're grieving mm. or you're, you know, you have a bad day. I feel depressed. No, you just feel sad that day. Mm -hmm. So when someone says they're depressed, it has a very different meaning to me and a very different how I understand it and how far I'm going to ask the person to explain right. will be obviously dependent on where I am. Right. But um, often I think we overuse it because it's a feeling word people know. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, so, I mean, just to let me, it is a disease. Mm. There's a great um, vi video called The Black Dog. Okay. That describes depression really well. Okay. And it's about the dog that sits on you and basically takes over your life. So it's ah. a small dog and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and so you're like this tiny thing and the dog is just becomes this huge thing. So if anyone out there wants to see a video about it, watch the black dog. I think it's from the Black Dog Institute. <laughs> yeah. So I think a question that has been asked a lot in our society is, so... If, for instance, Rose had not gone through what she went through, would she be manifesting symptoms of depression? Would I be melancholic about the fact that I'm not Kenyan enough? I don't know. I do think that some people, maybe those where there's that really big... Um, genetic link or biological link or right. um, 
it might happen regardless of. Uh-huh. For some, the the growing number of traumas or life events become triggers. Uh-huh. Mm. So I think different people, and then maybe if that first reaction to a 12 was very different or there was one slight change, I, I don't think that question can be answered. Okay. It's very, very difficult to say. Yeah. Very difficult to say. Wow. So what would it be your final statement to somebody who's going through some form of mental illness in our society? Do they get help? How do they discuss it? Where do they go for help? I think seek help. Um, one, two, talk about it to a friend, to, I don't know, just find someone. When your friends start posting on social media that they feel suicidal and life is not, and I feel it's so dark and all these things, take it seriously. Right. Get them help or call them up or reach out, but take it seriously. Don't think they're looking for attention. Don't think they're they're making a statement, posting it on Facebook mm. or, or wherever. Yeah. Just take it seriously. Your child comes to say, take it seriously. Um, there are many good people who can help you out there. Um, there are many people who help, like different, It would some might be based on age, some might be based on... I do believe that children are a whole different category to deal with because of the way they conceptualize things. But yes, right. there are people out there who can and do help you. Um, and when you seek help and you don't find the right fit, try someone else. Because even mm-hmm. sometimes you go to a doctor and like, I will never see that doctor again. <laughs> oh my! <God. laughs> yeah, the same thing can happen with your therapist. And if oh. you're going to spend one hour every week talking about what you're going through, find someone that works for you. Mm. I had a couple of aunties, not blood aunties, but they were my mom's friends, ladies who had known me since I was a little girl, who just were present. They were not psychiatrists. They were not clinical psychologists. These were just older ladies who were present. And they could see something was wrong. I don't want to use the word wrong. Let's say wasn't quite right. And what they would do was just be present. I went through a divorce and one of these ladies decided she will be there. She would call me up every other day and be like, what are you doing today? And I'd be like, I have nothing to do. And she'd be like, good. Take me on a drive. I'm like, where are we going? She's like, don't ask questions. Just park your car. I'll pick you up. And we just drive. And that was the most cathartic thing that lady ever did to me. For me, rather. She did this for two years. And when I look back, I realized I actually went through therapy with her. Better therapy than the people I was told to talk to about, you know, the whole divorce process and the whole process of, you know, now becoming a single mom and all of that. That lady did so much more just by being present. So I feel in our society that it's important to find somebody who is present for you. Yes, that's a brilliant way to put it. And sometimes it won't be the person you pay or the therapist. or the, It could be someone just walking that journey with you and walking mm. it in the right way, not mm. asking too demanding questions, mm-hmm. not asking why, not not feeling judgment, 
whatever it is, yeah. someone who works for you, you uh-huh. have found your Mary and your best friend, you know, yeah. we all need, I think, at least one person to connect with. Yeah. Mm. Wow, well, we can go on and on. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but thank you so much, Anita. Thank okay. you. Oh, this was such a treat. Thank you so much for giving us You're your welcome. time. We'd love to have you back. yay we got a yes (laughs) all right then um so this is like part one (laughs) of uh, the topic that we're discussing mental health mental illness in our society yeah um so our next week we'll be having a chit chat to find out the male perspective with a whole gang of men as well so that's going to be really interesting uh-huh. and really eye-opening. Again, Anita, we can't thank you enough for yes. being here. Mm. Um, and to be honest, I, I honestly feel like I had a good therapy session yes. myself. <laughs> there were tears. Yes, there were. You just couldn't see them, but there were. Uh, mm-hmm. The bottom line, with I think, at the end of this episode is, like um, what Anita and Mary have said, is find your tribe. Find the people that who love you, who will not judge you will walk you through this journey because it's not just a Kenyan problem it's not an African problem it's a human problem mm-hmm. we're all products of challenges that we've faced and in order to be the best versions of ourselves we have to deal with I guess the ghosts and wounds of our past yes. and heal and grow and to be better people yeah. so this has been Let's Be Honest with Rose and Mary <laughs> and I'm Rose and I'm Mary Fare thee well. Bye.